Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Douglas Natelson, who is Professor and Chair of Physics and Astronomy at Rice University. His research group focuses on the electronic, magnetic, and optical properties of nanoscale structures. Welcome, Doug. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I want to start with um, your commentary uh, in Physics Today a couple of years ago, a condensed matter's image problem. Uh, you say condensed matter is the largest discipline in, within physics. It has enormous influence on the average person's daily life. Nonetheless, the, the field flies under the popular radar, uh, routinely upstaged in the press, television, and popular literature by news of astrophysical exotica and the quest for new elementary particles. Uh, I, I, I agree with you, uh, Doug. Uh, I, I used to have uh, an engineering background, and then I think about physics. I generally just think about the astrophysical exotica that you mentioned and uh, the particle zoo. So, so, so what exactly is, let, let's start, let's go to the basics. Uh, what exactly is condensed matter physics? So condensed matter physics is what is the modern name for what people call used to call solid state physics, but I think they want people wanted to include liquids as well. So that's why it's sort of condensed phases distinct from gases. And the whole point of condensed matter physics, the whole philosophy behind condensed matter physics, to use the word in a non-professional way, um, is that there are emergent properties that happen when you bring together large numbers of constituents that maybe interact via very simple rules, you can end up with emergent behaviors and emergent properties that are not at all obvious. Yes. So the, the, the example I mentioned in the commentary and that I've talked about in other places um, is water molecules, right? So a single water molecule is a fairly easy thing to picture. You got your hot, your oxygen atom, you got a couple of hydrogen atoms, uh, hanging off there, um, 
they're sharing electrons. This, you can almost picture this whole thing as as sort of a you know three balls connected by springs. It's got vibrational modes. It can rotate, uh, and it's small enough that you could actually imagine solving the Schrodinger equation and trying to understand its electronic properties, its its energy levels, um, all of that. But the fact is, understanding the properties of a single water molecule does not tell you anything, at least nothing obvious about wetness or about the fact that snowflakes have six fold rotational symmetry. And so somehow one water molecule is not wet. One water molecule is neither a vapor nor a liquid nor a solid. But when you get a few hundred thousand water molecules together, suddenly you can have, if the, you know, if the temperature is sufficiently low and the density is sufficiently high, you can form a kind of a six fold symmetric solid crystal that has very specific rotational and translational symmetry properties. It has vibrational properties um, that kind of emerge only when you bring these things together. Um, it'll have optical properties that are different from the properties of a single molecule. So condensed matter physics is really the study of trying to understand and catalog, in some sense, all the emergent states that happen when you bring atoms together and uh, and their properties. And this can include electronic properties, optical properties, mechanical properties, magnetic right. properties. And, and so would you say in that sense, Doug, uh, it's closer to engineering and material sciences? Well, it's certainly close to material science, except that, um, again, I, I, have, I have a sort of a particular point of view on this. The way I figure it is, when I talk to students to try and explain the difference between science and engineering, um, obviously there's a continuum, right? There's no hard and fast boundary between science and engineering, but in general, physics in particular is concerned with trying to understand the rules. What are the organizing principles? What are the rules that govern how matter behaves? And then engineering is, okay, we understand the rules and now we have a particular problem of utility that we're trying to solve. So let's do something clever and leverage the rule, the understanding of the rules that we have to solve our problem. Yeah. So, so you know, these are these are related things, but they're not the same. Um, right. But there's um, so a solid state physics, as you mentioned, as it used to be called. There is there are so many applications of it, right? I mean, in everything that we do today, uh, we are feeling it, and so. Uh, so in that sense, um, it is really applied, applied physics, is it? It doesn't have to be applied. I mean, I think there it can be applied. Certainly, certainly many aspects of condensed matter physics um, and even atomic, molecular, and optical physics are now applied and, and, and have been useful for technologies that we use every day. But um, I think there there are just some really interesting uh, really interesting and fundamental properties that we learn about that 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 come about in these contexts. Um, I mean it's it, what's what's particularly interesting to me is that these days there's a, there's actually a lot of um, cross talk between the condensed matter world and the high energy physics world, mm -hmm. right? Um, so somehow, I guess here's what I would say there, there's this tradition that goes back, I suppose a bit over a hundred years of reductionism yeah. where you've got people have this idea that, okay, if you want to understand matter, 
you have to understand the particles and fields out of which matter is built. And that is eventually leads you to particle physics and trying to understand the ultimate tiniest constituents of matter. And I think the, that's the reductionist approach, right? Yeah. And the, the emergence approach, which is a complement to that, um, says, well, you know, knowing the mass of the Higgs boson tells me nothing about why diamond is transparent and an extremely good thermal conductor and the hardest material out there, right? Um, it, and, and, and the point is that there are, in the same way that there are organizing principles in high energy physics that people like to talk about, about symmetry and about um, uh, you know, sp special quantum numbers that, that are preserved, uh, uh, condensed matter physics has exactly the same uh, underlying rules and there are kind of beautiful uh, emergent things that come out in condensed matter that 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 frankly there's there's ideas that that originated in the high energy community that appear not to exist for fundamental particles but absolutely exist in the condensed matter context. So you know one example of something like this, um, you know there when when you know, Dirac was worrying about the Dirac equation back in the day, and you could you could write down an equation for um, how the energy of massless fermions, so if there's two different, you know, there's st different statistics of particles, there's fermions are these objects that have spin one half like electrons, right? Yeah. Um, the, there's, you know, Dirac had this prediction for, a uh, there were a bunch of predictions for, because the math, the math was relatively straightforward, for how massless fermions should behave. Yeah. And uh, it turns out that there appear not to be any massless fermions. I mean, even neutrinos, which are very, very light, and our fermions do not appear to have no mass. Um, but in graphene, for example, yeah. uh, graphene is a monolayer of, uh, of carbon atoms from graphite. So if graphite is a very layered material, if you peel off one layer, that's graphene. Um, the way electrons move in graphene, they move like in the sense that their energy and their momentum are related in the same way that Dirac was talking about for these, these massless fermions. So it's, it's, a, it's a really remarkable thing, right? Like electrons are not massless objects um, and they have a mass of nine times 10 to the minus 31 kilograms. And if you have an electron just off by itself floating in the room, uh, it, if, you, if you push on it, it will accelerate as if it's got the usual relationship with energy and momentum for a free particle. But if you look at the electrons that are in this layer uh, of carbon atoms, and you look at the basically the, the electrons that come from the p orbitals of the carbon atoms, um, yeah. they move like massless Dirac fermions. Uh, and and you know and why do they do that? Well, well, it's because of the particular symmetry of the material and 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 the you know the arrangement of atoms and exactly how many electrons you have in there that you end up with these emergent properties. So there's, there's a lot of stuff in condensed matter that is, um, you know, these ideas of symmetry and these ideas of, of quantities that are conserved, that, that are, they're conserved when the electrons say are inside the solid, but if you took away the solid, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be conserved anymore. That, you know, the, 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 all, all the ideas, all the deep ideas that show up in high energy physics show up in condensed matter as well, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it, it, it sounds like a very exciting discipline, uh, as you say, sort of um, in some sense, similar to high energy physics. 
But here you can run some experiments without spending tens of billions of dollars, I would imagine. That was certainly something that appealed to me when I was a student. Yeah. I kind of liked the idea that I could, you know, I could have all of the tools I needed to do interesting experiments and they would in fact fit in one room. And I could, and the number of authors on the paper might be three <laughs> instead of instead of requiring a you know a twenty billion dollar facility with a thousand collaborators just to keep it running. Um, so it, you know it, it's different in that respect. Um, but I, I you know I think condensed matter there's just there's uh, what I wish people had what I wish the popular public had yeah. was an appreciation of just how amazing the physics of the everyday world around you is the physics of the everyday materials around you is amazing. Now I know it doesn't sound terribly uh, exotic to say, see in condensed matter, we can explain why copper is shiny or um, you know, we can explain why you're not falling through your chair right now. Right. Or why you don't fall through the floor when you stand on the floor. Um, but the reasons behind those things are actually quite, quite remarkable and fascinating. I mean, the, re the, you know, the, the reason you do not fall through the floor is the same reason white dwarf stars don't collapse, okay? <laughs> it's all because of the Pauli exclusion principle. You know, the quantum mechanical nature of uh, electrons says that it costs energy to cram more, you know, to cram more electrons into a smaller volume costs energy. And this energy has nothing to do with the fact that they're like they have charges and that they repel each other. This is not the this is not the Coulomb repulsion. There is just energy associated with having fermions confined into a small volume, and that is really the reason why we solid matter can't pass through itself, even though it's mostly empty space. And it's the you know you can you can take those numbers and estimate like why materials are as strong as they are, and you get about the right answers. Um, there's just, I, I just wish people didn't, I, I feel like condensed matter is so ubiquitous. We're so used to some of the properties that we see that we, that we don't stop to think about how amazing it is. Yeah. As you mentioned, Doug, it, it is, it is also about sort of the emergent properties of matter at, at all, all scales. I would think, I remember Doug, um, in the late eighties, uh, when I was in engineering school, my advice are telling me that if you want to make a difference, um, go look at material sciences. <laughs> um, because he felt that that is the that is the domain where you could you could, you know, if you really understand it, you could make some some interesting things. And we're going to talk a bit about um superconductivity and other things later. Mm -hmm. Um, but that that is sort of an attraction to this field too, I would think. Yes, and I think one aspect that um, I hope people appreciate, uh, you can tell whenever you read breathless press releases from the semiconductor manufacturing community, um, for, with certain materials, there's always a bunch of caveats, but with certain materials, we are extraordinarily adept now at controlling their properties on very small scales with almost atomic precision. And that gives you tremendous control that allows you to achieve remarkable properties that, you know, so-called naturally occurring materials don't necessarily have. Right. And so that's, that is some of the attraction of is, is this idea that really 
how the building blocks go together and how the inter and the interplay between them. If you can, if you can, you know, make the equivalent of atomic Legos and you can just put together anything that you want, um, you could really, you could really do some impressive things and solve some impressive technical problems. So, so are we getting closer to that, Doug? You know, if, if we have a specification for a material that doesn't exist today, can we custom create that? So, so the phrase materials by design is something yeah. that occurs cyclically in the kind of the research community, right? This comes up every, every 25 years or so. There's a big push that says we should work on materials by design. And I, I have to say, we are closer to that now than we ever have been. Um, this, this comes, you know, there, there's a, a number of different aspects to this, right? So first of all, overarching all of this, you are still governed by the actual rules of chemistry and physics. So you can't arbitrarily make anything. Because yeah. what you will find is that certain structures are just energetically and entropically more favored. And so, you know, the, the history of, of uh, materials physics, for example, is replete with predictions of, oh, if you could make the following compound, it would have, it would superconduct at room temperature, or it would have these amazing properties. And it just turns out that you can't make the atoms stick together that way. Okay. Yeah. And, and there are some properties that are, that are, just because of physics, they they tend to be incompatible with each other. Um, so, uh, you know, it's very hard to have something be an incredibly good electrical conductor up to high frequencies and yet be transparent, hmm. be optically transparent, right? It, there's always compromises. So um, because the physics that gives you the really good electrical conductivity is is also the same physics that tells you about how charge moves when light hits something. <laughs> so you can't you can't arbitrarily tune things. But um, I will say that we're you know we're a lot closer than we used to be in terms of being able to man manipulate materials. There are, there are diagnostic tools for figuring out what you actually have that are far better than they were 10, 15, 20 years ago. I think there's a paper that came out in Nature like yesterday from some folks at Cornell doing very, very advanced electron microscopy where they can essentially figure out the positions of all the atoms in, in, in a very thin slice of some material. Um, and you know, that's amazing. Uh, and the other thing I will say, a very important component of this that is still a work in progress is the theory side. So you'd love to have real complete predictive power. And the fact is, that while we, we have a number of techniques, a number of theoretical techniques that can do a pretty good job uh, under a, a very broad variety of circumstances, there are still certain classes and types of materials where it is very hard to compute their properties purely theoretically ab initio. Um, I mean, fundamental, fundamentally, we, you know, it's computationally incredibly difficult to truly solve the quantum mechanics problem of many electrons. Yeah. And, and, and so we can make various approximations, right? And so there are some systems that we're pretty good at now. I think there are techniques for, if you want to understand pretty much the, the electronic structure and the energy level structure of most 
simple semiconductors. Um, and you know, you can do a pretty darn good job, right? Or if you want to understand the, the energy levels and properties of small molecules, we can do a pretty good job. But if you really, you know, there's, there's classes of materials uh, and classes of molecules where it can just be very difficult to get a, to get a reliable answer computationally. Yeah, I, I was just wondering, Doug, as we, as we were talking, so if, if we visualize some sort of a, you know, multi-feature design universe, um, physics and chemistry will forbid certain zones in that design space, right? That, that's, that's, the, that's one issue that you mentioned. Is that yes. true? Yes, I think that's true. I mean, they're, they're you know, th this is why, I mean, again, I, I'm kind of a nanotechnology person, right? I'm a nanoscale, what, what the, a big component of my research program is work at the nanoscale. And I love science fiction and I love the science fiction depiction of nanotechnology. But the fact is that you cannot arbitrarily build any structure you want out of atoms by just placing them where you want them to be. You know, I mean, in the in the end, there are energetic considerations and other considerations that really do limit what you can do. Um, and geometry won't allow you to get around it. Uh, I mean, I always hesitate to say. You know, <laughs> I, I always hesitate to make make absolutist statements, but um, I think you know there are certain things that I just don't think you can do. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, 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 you know, or, or, or the, you can run into the problem that you can, you might be able to make something, but it's not necessarily really stable. Right. So it's the sort of the equivalent of, you know, I can stack up a bunch of playing cards in a very elaborate structure, but if I, you know, touch this thing at all, it's all going to collapse. Right. Right. Um, so, you know, the, like there's a reason why, and it, it's sort of, it's sort of very interesting why we get the structures we do. But if you look at carbon atoms, you know, there's a very limited number of ways carbon atoms like to arrange themselves if left to their own devices, right? You get graphite, you get diamond, you get fullerenes, which are in some sense related to graphite, right? I mean, you're, you're taking um, sp2 bonded carbon and you're twisting it around in different ways. Um, and then of course you can have a morph, really amorphous carbon, but that's about it. I mean, so you're not going to get, you know, you're net, there's no chemically stable way to make hexagonally close packed carbon. It just won't, it just doesn't want to do that. Um, so, so you also mentioned the theory side, the computational aspects of this is, uh, is also, um, somewhat limiting just just because you know, given the current resources in computing, I would imagine, but if you're successful in quantum computing and we really bump up you know these these boundaries of computing by many, many orders of magnitude right so you you you've hit upon exactly you know this is an attractive um potential application uh, even and even with the you know so-called noisy intermediate scale quantum structures people can make now um there is a clear interest in trying to solve certain kind of um, electronic properties of molecules problems, right? So yes, I mean that that is a real that is a real possibility. Is that the the I guess what I would say is the reason the many electron problem is complicated um, computationally and why its complexity grows exponentially with the number of electrons 
that's closely related to the reason why the capabilities, if you had general purpose quantum computers, the capabilities of these quantum computers grows exponentially in the number of qubits. So, so there's definitely interest in, in, you know, if you, if you could make general purpose quantum computers, you could solve, um, certain material problems much more efficiently. Yeah. I was, um, reading or talking to somebody, I think they are up to 40 qubits or so, but if you can get to 200, as you say, it sort of exponentially goes up, but 200, um, we have something that, that would open up uh, so many forbidden areas currently. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, you know, it's a very interesting question. I mean, certainly the, you know, Google's Sycamore machine is 53 superconducting qubits with certain levels of properties. Ion Q has trapped ions and can do on the order of 40 qubits where the fidelity of those qubits, the ability of those qubits to remain in a really kind of in a nice quantum configuration is, is quite a bit better than the superconducting case. Um, and I've, I've, I haven't read the paper, but I've heard a report that somebody in China has gotten up to kind of 60 superconducting qubits. Um, the, you know, none of these technologies are quite ready for prime time yet. Yeah. Um, no one knows what the best platform is really to, to, um, to achieve this. It is true. If you had, you know, if you had a couple of hundred really high quality qubits, logical qubits that had good fidelity and you could really run many operations. So, and you didn't need like a few thousand auxiliary qubits just to do error correction or something. Yeah. Um, if you could do that, then you could do a lot of things. I mean, the, the big one that people talk about, of course, is factoring large numbers, um, which potentially could break a whole bunch of the encryption schemes that are used uh, for things like um, banking online and for uh, secure communications and for um, cryptocurrencies, these sorts of things. Hmm. Um, and simulations. Um but I give simulations in life sciences as well as astrophysics, I think, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, the, you know, there there's a lot of effort going in on the part of very clever people thinking about algorithms where, you know, how, how do you take the problem you're trying to solve and put it in a form where you can run it in some intelligent way on a quantum computer and really take advantage of the 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 quantum uh, advantage, the quantum computational advantage. And so there's, there's certain bio, uh, well, there's a, there's a lot of interest in, again, this is almost going back to the chemistry stuff. There's a lot of interest in the, um, understanding the properties of molecules, right? So if you could, if you could efficiently model the, the, you know, all of the properties of proteins, um, in some very computationally efficient way, this would be a big deal, right? For drug discovery and things like that. Right, right. Yeah, in some sense, the condensed matter physics is is sort of the engine of the train. Uh, if you don't make that engine work, um, you know, many of the compartments we cannot go any further <laughs> than we have. Yeah, I think this, there's 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 some real truth to that. And I and again, I think um, you know, the one 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 aspect of condensed matter is that it has led to some realizations in recent years that, that, um, maybe there are organizing principles that we weren't really thinking about before that we need to be aware of. Yeah. So an example of this, there's a lot, been a lot of work in the last 10, 15 years on topology, 
the importance of topology. So, you, you know, a lot of people have kind of a hand wave notion of what topology is. It's the saying that basically, um, you know, it's kind of the, the connectedness of things. Uh, it's the branch of math that, that tells you that a donut is different than a sphere because a donut, you know, has, is a surface of genus one and a sphere is a surface of genus zero. And, and, and that the idea that a donut can be continuously transformed into the shape of a coffee mug because you've preserved the number of holes, right? These, these kinds of ideas um, have really come to the fore in condensed matter in the last 10 or 15 years. And again, there's a lot of interest in, first of all, there's just the, the scientific insight that, boy, we really haven't been thinking about some of these things the right way. Um, but then there's the possibility that these systems with interesting kind of hidden topological properties might really be useful for things. There's ideas about quantum computing involving topological qubits. There's there's ideas about materials where along the edges of these materials you could get chart you could imagine having charge flow with very 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 minimal dissipation because the scattering that usually gives you things like ordinary electrical resistance is sort of forbidden because of topological reasons. Mm. So you know, it's very interesting stuff. Yeah, I don't know much about this, Doug, but um, so so when we think about materials, do, don't we typically think about topology or geometry? We certainly think about geometry in the sense of the spatial arrangement of the atoms. Yeah. Um, I think the topology stuff that comes about is and this is one again one reason why it's challenging to explain certain aspects of condensed matter to a general audience yeah the topology that comes up in these systems really has to do with basically the properties of the electronic wave functions like the quantum mm -hmm. mechanical states of the electrons and that's not something you can see with your eye right, right. i mean condensed matter we're used to this idea that like look i can tell the difference between a solid and a liquid and i can tell you know those are distinct states or distinct phases, and with very crude tools, I can tell what whether something is a solid or a liquid. And then um, with more sophisticated tools, I can tell you what kind of solid it is. I can tell you how the atoms are arranged, right? Is it a cubic structure? Is it a hexagonal structure? Um, is it is it sort of more of a 3D network, or is it like a, a stacked bunch of two-dimensional layers? And you know, the, we, we've gotten better and better at being able to characterize these things. The electronic kind of the hidden away topology stuff, it's challenging to explain, certainly challenging to explain without pictures um, <laughs> because, because really it's not at all obvious to the naked eye. Um, right. You know, it's hard to point to some grossly clear physical property and say, aha, you see, that's how you can tell that this is, you know, there, there's the hole in the donut. There's the, there's the, the thing that distinguishes these two things um, you know, one example of this is that, um, you know, bismuth selenide is a, a topological insulator, it is called. I mean, it's also a semiconductor that's been very useful for thermoelectric applications. But, um, you know, for something like 80 or 90 years, people had no idea that bismuth selenide was topologically interesting. Mm. Um, and it was only in comparatively recent times that people realized, you know, bismuth selenide has these weird properties. And what it really means is that the like the bulk of bismuth selenide acts like a semiconductor. 
but yeah. the surfaces have unusual properties. And we don't usually think about the surfaces. A lot of the math we learn when we deal with solids um, is really concerned with here you are immersed in the bulk of some infinitely large material. Um, but the topology stuff comes out at the surfaces and at the edges of things. Um, yeah. and so that's one reason why it's been subtle for people to figure out. Yeah, and it's also, Doug, would it be correct in, in assuming that some of these insights really really come through experimentation, right? Not from theory. So as an experimentalist, I should say absolutely, yes. <laughs> um, but I, I do think, I do think particularly on some of, the, in the case of this topology stuff, I think theory has actually been extremely, extremely important. I mean, yeah. there's a healthy, in condensed matter physics, partly because experiment is so accessible. Right. There is very, very often historically experiment has sort of taken the lead over theory. Right. People have measured something weird and then it's important to understand where it comes from. So, you know, superconductivity was discovered in 1911 and it wasn't until 1957 that the theory of conventional superconductivity, the BCS theory, Bardeen, Cooper, Schrieffer theory was formulated. Right. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that that's the sort of the traditional order of events. But um, these days, you know, theory has gotten more and more sophisticated and there's been, uh, you know, there's been a healthy back and forth between theory and experiment. This is one of the challenges with high energy physics these days, which yeah. is that um, you could argue, you know, theory that there had, with the exception of the discovery of the Higgs boson, which was in fact ex sort of expected for <laughs> yeah. various reasons. Yeah. You know, there have not been any big experimental surprises in high energy physics. Right. And so the theory community has been a bit decoupled and has yeah. kind of gone off and pursued a whole lot of exotic things, hoping that there will be evidence for some of these things coming down the pipe. I mean, I don't want to sound like they're totally unmotivated. They've <laughs> got good reasons for thinking yeah. about the things you're thinking about. Yeah. But, but there really is kind of a disconnect between, between theory and experiment at the high energy level in certain ways that is not true in, you know, in condensed matter or in, you know, atomic physics, where there's much more of a back and forth between theory and experiment, I think, these days. Yeah, and the economics of the machines in high energy physics is sort of a limitation, right? Um, and so as theory advances, and, you know, if you're requiring 10x, 100x energy levels. Well, so that that's really the yeah. question, right? So so how far, how much more energy do you need before you expect to see interesting, surprising things? If the answer is 3x, that's easily conceivable, right? If the answer is 30,000x, <laughs> then, and you'd need a particle accelerator the size of the moon, then, you know, you start thinking to yourself, okay, there have to be different approaches to these problems that might be more practical to implement, right? And so this is in fact why um, there are all kinds of clever ideas out there now from the world of both condensed matter and atomic physics about, you know, can we do precision measurements? Can, are there, are there things we can do to infer about more exotic physics without necessarily having to build a, you know, $500 billion giant particle collider? Yeah, I remember reading, Doug, uh, this was in Berkeley, I think. Uh, there were, there's a group working there, sort of a, they call it a desktop uh, collider or something like that. Well, I, I know people at Stanford 
I mean, there's there's a number of people who have thought about um, very compact ways of of making particle accelerators. Yeah. Um, I think Wakefield acceleration is a phrase that that crops up, um, and I think there's progress being made, mm -hmm. but the the fact is that these days you know, the, the large Hadron Collider is really where all the business is um, uh, at, the, at the energy frontier of particle physics. Yeah. The, the, the other extreme of this, of course, is astrophysics. I mean, there are, there are astrophysical sources of very energetic particles. And so there are some beautiful experiments like Ice Cube down at the South Pole, yeah. where they're basically using the South Polar ice as a scintillator and detecting, you know, cosmic rays and neutrinos from you know, highly energetic neutrinos from space by the flashes of light given off inside the polar ice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Excellent. So we will take a quick break, uh, Doug. When we come okay. back, we'll talk about some of your recent papers. Sounds good. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. To be back, uh, Doug, uh, we were talking about condensed matter physics. And uh, sometimes um, because of all the exotic stuff that we hear in astrophysics and high energy physics, uh, the public hasn't really uh, attached to uh, what condensed matter physics does. And um, it is a multidisciplinary field. There is a lot of material sciences um, type things involved there too. You have a few papers, uh, recent papers, and one of them, electron pairing in the pseudo gap state revealed by short noise in copper oxide junctions. You say in the quest to understand high temperature superconductivity in copper oxides, debate has been focused on the pseudo gap, a, a partial energy gap that opens over portions of the Fermi surface in the noble state about the bulk critical temperature. Before we get into the details of this, uh, Doug, um, I remember um, superconductivity again in the 80s. We were told that it is, you know, just just a few years away that we're going to get room temperature <laughs> superconductivity. Right. So uh, where are we now? Okay, so here's here's the story. So superconductivity is this remarkable state that happens in some conductors. It tends to happen at low temperatures. And that it's what allows um, conductors to carry electricity, to carry electrical currents without any resistance. And certain very particular things have to happen in order for that to take place. We now understand. Yeah. Um, one thing that has to happen, it would appear, is that the electrons have to pair up. So even yeah. though electrons repel each other, um, electrons pair up into what are called Cooper pairs. Yeah. And, and this is the Cooper of the... Bardeen Cooper Schrieffer theory from 1957. And these Cooper pairs all decide to act cooperatively. So the, the one way you can picture it is, you know, imagine you're having a dance, people pair up into partners and pairing up is important, but the real superconductivity happens is when, when all the partners are all dancing together in sync. Okay. It and is, so 
and so go ahead question uh yeah. now, so it has nothing to do with entanglement though right this is something completely different oh well that's a very that's a very complicated question um <laughs> cer certainly their entanglement is an important ingredient in this problem <laughs> because when you're pair when you're pairing up the electrons really you're entangling them with okay. each other now the 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 kind of superconductivity that happens at really low temperatures that was discovered by Kamerlinga Onis in the early 20th century um, and happens in things like lead and niobium and aluminum. Um, the glue that makes the pair stick together involves lattice vibrations or phonons, sound waves. Okay. Yeah. And um, so we kind of understand that pretty well. And there were good reasons to think that that mechanism was not going to work at temperatures above maybe 20 or 30 Kelvin, um, and at least under ordinary circumstances. Mm. One, there's a, a caveat to that that I'll get to in a minute. So yeah. the, the big shock was in, in basically 1986, uh, this class of ceramics was discovered, these copper oxides were found, where they superconduct at, at say, at ambient pressures, um, they superconduct at temperatures as high as 150 Kelvin which is basically halfway to room temperature, right? Room yeah. temperature is about, you know, 295, 300 Kelvin. So um, as there was a huge jump basically in, in, in what right. people could do. And therefore there was an enormous amount of optimism that, oh my goodness, we're almost there. We can almost yeah. do this at room temperature. Well, of yeah. course, it, it turns out here we are um, 35 years later and uh, we still don't really understand why the copper oxide superconductors behave the way they do. One of the one of the avenues for trying to understand these materials. So the, I will say the quality of the materials. This is the material science part. The quality of the material that people are studying has got steadily gotten much better, and that way you're re, you really think you're looking at intrinsic things. You're not looking at you know impurities or dirt that you're not controlling, um, but. Uh, one of the things people, one avenue people have taken is trying to understand the normal state, the non-superconducting state. And the reasoning is, okay, in an ordinary metal like lead, we understand the metallic state of lead very well. It's what's called a Fermi liquid. We know what the low energy excitations of that are. They are these quasi particles that act very, very much like electrons. Um, yeah. They've got charge minus E, they've got spin a half. They live a long time, so to speak. Um, so the assumption is if, if, you know, that's the starting ingredient for the BCS theory in the ordinary metals. And the thinking is it would be great if we could understand the normal prop, the normal state properties of the copper oxides. And that has proven really, really hard. Mm -hmm. So one of the, the experiment, this particular experiment um, was designed to, with that in mind, was designed to try and look at the normal state of what's called one of the underdoped copper oxides. Um, the, the, the native material, lanthanum copper oxide, is an insulator. It's a special kind of insulator called a Mott insulator. Um, and if you do an atomic substitution and start putting in strontium instead of lanthanum, you make it more conductive. And at some point, there is an optimal amount of strontium you put in to get the, the superconductivity to have a maximal temperature. In that system, that maximal temperature is about 40 Kelvin. Um, but it's a very well-controlled system on the scale of these things. And so, so the experiment we did, and I can talk about it in a second, I, uh, um, yeah. is to try and understand the normal state. Now, 
my, my, my caveat from a minute ago, um, very recently in the last three, four years, people have succeeded in getting superconductivity in very, very hydrogen rich compounds mm -hmm. like lanthanum hydrogen 10, right? So 10 hydrogen atoms for every lanthanum atom and also at crazy high pressures. So you make these very hydrogen rich materials and you squeeze them literally between two diamonds to get up to very high, very, very high pressures. And it would appear those systems do superconduct and they superconduct nearly at room temperature. Oh. Now, you know, it's not super useful if you have to squeeze yeah. things, <laughs> yeah. you know, with thousands of atmospheres of pressure to make them superconduct. But what it tells you is that there's nothing you know, there's no roadblock in principle to having something superconduct at room temperature. The challenge is getting the right set of ingredients together. Yeah. So the, the copper oxide. So, so what happens? Let's say you know we get superconductivity at 100 Kelvin, for argument's sake. Yep. As you increase the temperature just above 100, it it stops completely, or is there some kind of a variation? So, so this is also an interesting question. So, um, in it. In a conventional superconductor, one of the old school kind, what happens is, is you so lead, for example, the superconducting transition in lead is about 7.2 Kelvin. Below 7.2 Kelvin, the electrons like to pair up and they form these Cooper pairs and they form this condensate that acts as a superconductor. And then when you get when you warm it up and you get to 7.2 Kelvin, the pairs fall apart. And the thing basically becomes a normal metal. And there's a very, very narrow region in temperature, maybe a fraction of a, a small fraction of a degree where it kind of looks like there's some superconducting fluctuations maybe, but pretty much superconductivity is gone as soon as you really get above that transition. Now in the copper oxides, yeah, one of the things we showed in our measurement, but we're not the only people who've shown this, other people with other indirect techniques have also shown this. The issue in the copper oxides, it doesn't seem like the pairs fall apart. Yeah. They stop superconducting, but there's it's possible that there are still some pairs present above the superconducting transition, yeah. right? So that's different. That's different than the other case. That's now, so so it's it, it, to go back to my ballroom dance analogy. Yeah. Um. It's not that you've lost the. It's not. It's not that everyone's lost their partners. It's just that each each couple is no longer paying attention to what the other couples are doing, mm. right? And so the, here's the real attractive idea. You know, if the pairing is really quite robust, then boy, wouldn't it be great if you could figure out how to reach in somehow and synchronize everybody up? Yeah. Because if the, if the pairing survives up to room temperature, then now you're talking about, well, we have a different problem now. Now we, it's, not, it's not a question of forcing things to pair. It's a question of forcing things to be coherent. Right. And so, and so that's, that's kind of the interesting bit. Yeah. Um, I don't know anything about this stuff, but I was just thinking, uh, if we cycle the temperature many, many times, mm -hmm. would we see a difference? Um, in this system, not really. No. Okay. I mean, I mean, if, okay. If you cycle the temperature up to very high temperatures, so it's high enough that atoms actually move around, then you've got problems. But, but I mean, if you just go back and forth across the transition, nothing nothing history dependent happens okay basically because the, the the pairs remain but they're not synchronized so so i guess the challenge is 
could could you take the structure and and resynchronize it somehow right right so there are people who are playing games with doing things with light or yeah. or otherwise or or you know otherwise trying to somehow couple into the pairs and get them to all dance together now the experiment we did um is basically it, it, i can give you another an analogy for that too so um we use what's called shot noise yeah. which is um the the noise that results in the chart so you know you, if you apply a voltage across a some electrical object right and you want that you have the current flow you get some average current and so we're used to the idea that this is how you define you know resistance right the resistance is the ratio between the voltage you apply and the current that you get yeah. um but uh you don't necessarily, you know, there, you can get the same average current in different ways. And so you can have, is, um, you could have, you could have, uh, rain falling on your, on your roof and you could have the same rate of waterfall as a, as a continuous fine mist or as a few widely spaced, huge raindrops. Yeah. Right. So the current is the same, but the fluctuations are very, very different. And so by measuring the fluctuations in the electrical current, you can, and comparing it with what's expected to happen if the electrons are just sort of randomly going through one at a time, you can figure out whether they're going through one at a time or whether they're sometimes going through as pairs. And so that's basically what we did. We, by, by looking at the, the fluctuations in the current and especially designed structure, we could tell that um, even though we weren't in the superconducting state, that there were times when it sure looked like the electrons were going through two at a time. Yeah. Do you have an intuition, Doug, as, as you as you look forward? Um, so it, it, this appears promising, right? It, it seems like a, a somewhat of a different axis that you have a structure remaining. Do, do you think um, it is going to be a material science uh angle or something else to go further uh that's a really good question i think i think certainly um there are plenty of people who are interested in taking the you know the materials approach of trying to understand particularly there, there's a there's like i said there are people who are playing around with light as well yeah. to sort of use light to induce something that looks a lot like the superconducting state at higher temperatures and I think what people are doing is they're looking at they're looking at experiments like that and trying to figure out, okay, so you're 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 turning some knob, you're perturbing the system in some way and and getting and stabilizing it in, in at least temporarily in something that looks like a superconducting sort of regime. What would I need to do in terms of the material to get that all the time? Yeah. And the same thing is true with even these high these hydrogen rich things. So the idea that like metallic hydrogen at high pressures could be a room temperature superconductor that goes right. Yeah. Um, and, but no one had ever gotten there, you know, and, but I think now that people are getting close to with, at these high pressures with these hydrogen rich materials, there are people who are looking at these and saying, okay, what would it take? You know, what, what's happening at these high pressures and how could I stabilize something like that with the natural structure of the material rather than having to squeeze on it with two diamonds. Yeah. Um, but the, the practical aspects of it, well, it, um, it seems to me that um, the copper oxide direction, uh, but you know, the pessimistic aspect of it, like you say, 
we are sort of standing still for 35 years. Um, I don't think that's a fair, yeah. well, two things. First of all, I don't think that's yeah. a fair assessment. I mean, I think we've learned yeah. a lot. Um, I do. And also I, I will say that there are actual, there are actual applications of high temperature superconductors. I mean, there's, yeah. you know, there are, there are magnets for various industrial applications based on high temperature superconductors. Um, the, this group at MIT who wants to do a very compact fusion reactor, the, the whole trick there is they're using high temperature superconducting magnets um, that enables you to get much higher fields and therefore make a smaller device. Um, so th we have made progress. It just, you know, the initial forecasts were very optimistic, right? And the, the other thing that people underestimated, and this, this tends to happen um, anytime you really want to make major, major industrial advances in a new material system, um, it, it always takes longer than you think. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you another example, right? Pe people were, um, people figured out in the early nineties, how to make nanocrystals of some semiconductors, like mm -hmm. two, six semiconductors, like cadmium selenide. Yeah. And these crystals are, have remarkable fluorescent properties and, um, you know, they can be used for all kinds of different things. And, 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 you know, it took, it took 20 years before people solved not so much the science problem, but the chemical engineering problem of really making ton quantities of these things with reproducible properties. And now, of course, you can buy flat screen televisions that have these quantum dots in them, right? But it took 20 plus years. And so, you know, the fact that it's taken 35 years uh, doesn't so much shock me. I mean, I think pe people are very, very spoiled by things like silicon. Yeah, but but even silicon, if you look at it, we're reaping the benefits of basically seventy-five years of intense research by thousands of people. <laughs> so, so the reason the reason silicon is as capable as it is is because you know an, a remarkable amount of effort has been put in, into place into understanding silicon. This is why whenever I hear people say, "Oh, you know, we're going to use." two-dimensional semiconductors to replace silicon in five years. I mean, no, you're not, <laughs> you know, it, I mean, it may happen eventually, yeah. but like the, the material qual, like the reason, you know, sil the kind of silicon we can grow for semiconductor applications, you know, it's, it's pure to a part in a trillion, right. And they can grow single crystals as big as dinner plates in diameter. I mean, it, it's just astonishing what's been achieved. Yeah. And so anyone who thinks they're going to supplant that technology in a few years is just not realistic. Yeah, I mean, the scale-up is always an underappreciated problem because Absolutely. we think engineering problem and engineering problems can always be solved, <laughs> but uh, but often it takes time. Yep. So, so, uh, so I wanted to finish up with your most recent paper, Thermoelectric Response from Grain Boundaries and lattice distortions in crystalline gold devices. So this is something that you did with a group at Stanford? Yes, yes. So this is a fun one. So, yeah. so, you know, thermoelectricity is this phenomenon where if you take a conductor and you make one end hot and one end cold, you will build up a voltage across the conductor. And the this is this was identified by by a fellow named Sebeck, you know, 150 years ago or more, um, maybe even longer than that. I, I have the feeling it's almost 200 years, actually. Um, 
And it's the basis for basically the thermostat in your house probably, right? Or, or the yeah. thermocouples that measure the temperature inside your car. Um, you know, you take a couple of different metals, you stick them together. And if you uh, keep their, their end, the, the far ends of these things uh, at a fixed temperature and the junction between them at a different temperature, you generate a voltage and you can use that for thermometry. Um, so usually you think that if I have a single material, uh, its properties just are what they are. And so, um, if I heat, uh, you know, if I, if, if I inhomogeneously heat this material, so just imagine I've got like an iron bar and I heat the middle of it and I measure the voltage between the two ends, I should get zero because it's all iron. So the thermoelectric properties of iron are uniform as I, as I go along the iron bar. And so, you know, in the end I get, I get nothing. Right. But, um, it was, it was found a few years ago that, uh, and in hindsight, it's not that surprising that that's not, that doesn't really, that's not really true. Um, in the sense that if you make things sm sufficiently small, so, so the thermoelectric properties result from, um, how the electrons scatter and how they, and, and, and you can change how the electrons scatter off of disorder and off of various things by making your system small. So if, if, if a dominant part of the scattering is like bouncing off the walls, then by changing the geometry of your device, you can make, uh, you know, you can basically have a fat wire attached to a skinny wire. Even if it's all the same material, you, if the, if it, you know, if the fat wire is 500 nanometers wide and the skinny wire is hundred nanometers wide, it'll act like a thermocouple and you'll, you'll get interesting thermoelectric physics. And so, so what we had found was that, um, we were very surprised to find that you can make just, you know, you can make what you think of as a thin film of metal, in this case, gold. Um, it's made up of a bunch of little crystals. And we were surprised to find that what we thought was a uniform film and like electrically, it looks like a very nice uniform film had all kinds of weird local variations in its thermoelectric properties. And we didn't understand that. And so we worked, we worked with this group at Stanford. We, we assumed when we were starting out on this, that, well, okay, the issue has to be the grains. It has to be that the grains and the, the way the different crystal grains fit together, that's the problem. That's the issue. Yeah. And so this group at Stanford, led by Jonathan Fan in electrical engineering there, they had come up with a technique for growing single crystal gold wires. And even cooler than that, they could grow a wire that was made of exactly two crystals and one boundary between them. <laughs> and we thought, oh, this is perfect. This is the perfect system. We can, we can look and see um, whether one single grain boundary does something interesting, right? And so the way we do the experiment is we use a, a, a laser as a scannable heat source, basically. And we essentially, we have a laser and a voltmeter and we scan the laser over the system and measure the voltage across the system. And um, what surprised us was the grain boundary itself doesn't really do much of anything. Mm. Um, what does matter is these crystals aren't perfect and very subtle structural defects with the crystals yeah. totally matter. <laughs> so, so it turns out that strain matters, right? If you're, if you, if you've got strain and plastic deformation and any kind of dislocations and kind of any crystal, any structural imperfections, this, they affect, it affects the thermoelectric properties enough that you can measure it. Yeah. Um, and, and that was surprising to us. So that's, that's what that paper was.
Um, we actually have a paper that we're getting ready to submit now that's yeah. related where it turns out you can also use the same measurement technique to identify tiny amounts of impurities in your material as well. Hmm. It's sort of, sort of the history of the crystal, right? I mean, uh, you know, if you think about structural defects and strain. Oh, absolutely. So, so one way we persuaded ourselves that what we were seeing was really a, partly a strain effect yeah. was you, you, you take devices and you, you anneal them, yeah. right? You treat them, you, 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 you treat them differently. You, you, you hold them at elevated temperatures for longer so that you like to think that certain kinds of structural defects will sort of heal themselves hmm. and you, and you see what happens in the response. Um, and so that was one way we decided we, 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 you know, that was one piece of collateral evidence that, that these structural defects and strain were, were important here, but yeah, it all comes down to how you treat the stuff. So, I mean, so the bottom line is if, if, if you want to, you know, the, the wiring in your computer chips, for yeah. example, it's, it's strained, right? I mean, you, it's, it's, it's copper in very confined geometries. It's put down in a very particular way. It's thermally cycled in certain ways. And it probably has baked into it, um, you know, certain kinds of structural imperfections that you could probably go and look for with this, with this technique, if you wanted to. Hmm. Do, do you see any uh, sort of direct applications here? Um, can you sort of design in a strain to get some properties? That's an interesting question. So um, that's something that we've thought about. Um, I think what, what I think would be, what I think would be interesting would be to do the experiment to directly measure the effect of strain at this level. You could do it. It would be, so there are people who are very good at making micro machined, uh, actuators and things, the same sort of stuff that, that basically is like the accelerometer in your phone that tells it which way to orient the screen or the airbag sensor in your car. Um, these micro machined. Uh, platforms, you could you can make those in a way where you could basically, if you worked hard enough at it, you could take one of these wires and you could pull on it and know exactly what kind of strain you're doing and yeah. see what the effect is. I think that, I mean, it would be sort of a heroic experiment, but it might be very interesting to do. And that, I think there are opportunities. Uh, I think it's just engineering, you know, really engineering the strain in some of these systems is hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Excellent. So, so in conclusion, uh, Doug, what would you like to say to prospective students of hundreds matter physics uh, looking forward five, 10 years? I think this is one of the most exciting areas of physics. There's a lot of action going on. And I, I should also point out it touches, condensed matter touches, apart from the profound aspects about, you know, topology and emergent properties and what does it really, you know, what, what do we really mean by fundamental? Uh, you get all sorts of exotic physics like charge fractionalization and spin liquids and highly entangled systems. Um, apart from that, condensed matter, you know, has a role to play in many, many future technologies, including the world of quantum information. Um, and, and I want people to appreciate, you know, the remarkable physics at work in the world around them every day. And I think, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's an example of a field of physics that is thriving and very active. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, sometimes in the popular press, you know, people will write articles, John Horgan will write an article in Scientific American about the end of physics. 
And, you know, these kinds of things just annoy me because, because basically it's, a, it's, it's basically saying high energy particle physics equals all of physics. And that's just not accurate there. And, and it also sort of implies that, well, but high energy particle physics is really the fundamental stuff. Like, I don't think that's obvious. I, think, I don't think it's obvious that the only way you can get fundamental insights is from kind of the reductionist high energy paradigm. I think there's a lot of fundamental insight to be gained by looking at emergent phenomena. So come on in and join the party. It's, it's, it's fun. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Doug. Thanks so much for spending time with me. My pleasure. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.